Thank you, Don and Claudia. Keith and Judy, thank you for your part, for being here with us this morning and leading us in our worship. I want to just highlight a couple things for us this morning as well. Uh, you will want to take one of these. If you go out to our global outreach table out in the lobby, you'll see a packet right here. Just as a, our, our mission's theme, make known his deeds among the people. On each page is one of our missionaries, and it gives a little brief bio, a picture, and also gives a list, a, a prayer request at the bottom of each page. I encourage you for each family to take one and use it. Don't just put it in a drawer somewhere, but leave it out. Leave it by your Bible. Leave it at your, your breakfast table. Read it and pray together with your family for a missionary. You can do that on a daily basis, a weekly basis. We would love to run out of these. And uh, um, they're kind of like Doritos. Uh, we can go ahead and make more. And so um, uh, uh, we would love to run out. So make sure to take one per family, and we will continue to make more if needed. Well, it's my privilege to introduce a friend. And uh, Pastor Chuck is no stranger to us. In fact, I think you came to our church, your family did, when you were in about middle school. Is that correct? Entering high school. So he has grown up in this church, went away to college and then to seminary. And then when he came after seminary, he came on staff. And he was our missions pastor and formulated a lot of the ideas and, and, and goals for our missions here in our church. Had a great impact on us. He was also, I think, our first assimilation pastor. And I still don't know why we ever called something uh, so cold for a ministry. It's supposed to be warm and connecting. We now call it connections ministry, but uh, assimilation. Uh, what were we thinking? But um, we are glad that you're here. Pastor Chuck, when he was in seminary, had two things that God was laying on his heart. He shared with me here recently. He wanted to be involved in a ministry like Woodcliffe. Uh, as well as with a Bible translation, as well as being involved in the ministry and for so uh, in the chaplaincy in the military, and uh, he shared with me he thought that God would, had an either or for him, but uh, God did not. He put an and, and so Pastor Chuck served after he left our church, served in the military as a chaplain for many years. Since retired, is now on staff with Wycliffe Ministries, and God is able to use those connections and relationships he's developed now in his. His new role, and uh, we want to welcome him back to our pulpits, and uh, thank you, Pastor Chuck, for being here today. Thank you, Doug. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Thank you, uh, Eileen and Pastor Doug and Pastor Jay for inviting me to be here as I was anticipating coming up to this pulpit, uh, it was a very humbling thought to think of the many great men of God who have stood before you and opened God's word, and here's little old me. Uh, what, a, what an honor and privilege it is, and, and may he be glorified this morning. Yes, uh, Doug mentioned some of our connections with this church, and I was thinking even uh, our three youngest children were baptized in that uh, baptismal, and the other two, baptismal didn't exist yet. So one was in a horse trough out back, and the other was up at a lake at uh, Timberlee. Um, our, our family is very connected with this church, and it's, it's good to be back. For those of you who uh, are new here since 2002, when, uh, when we left, I'd love to meet you. And... Uh, get acquainted and hear why God called you to the Evangelical Free Church of Crystal Lake. You've obviously uh, have wisdom and insight uh, to choose this church and God has, God has blessed you accordingly. 
Andrea and I are, are enjoying the fall weather. Uh, we're not used to fall weather. Uh, you see in our bio, we don't live where there is a fall. Um, but the, the brisk uh, breezes and the, and the leaf color changes and all things are, are beautiful that way. We're also noticing uh, the tractors and combines uh, driving down the road or crisscrossing the fields, um, harvesting the corn, and what an appropriate time of year to have a missions conference where you focus on the harvest of souls, if you will, that the church is called to do. You may not be thinking about the harvest. Uh, others of you may be thinking about election news. Uh, wasn't that interesting what happened in Virginia this week? Um, you might like it if you're a Republican. You might be concerned if you're a Democrat. Um, or, or maybe you're concerned about the nation's cultural slide. Um, what can be done to turn it around? Or perhaps, uh, you know, we live out in Hawaii, it's a little closer to China and that hypersonic missile that they were testing recently. Well, Psalm 18 verse 2 says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge. And in part, that is what we'll be looking at today. We're going to be looking at uh, Isaiah chapter 19. I was so thankful that Fred Nemi handed me a sermon outline on my way in. <laughs> and uh, we'll, we'll try to follow that as best as possible. God is in the business of shaking the foundations of things that we might look to for security and uh, drawing us to, to depend on him. But he also has even bigger plans than that. Um, if, you're, if you're a theologian, maybe you might say, well, this, this chapter is sort of a picture of, of eschatology driving missiology. Uh, and doesn't the end of things somewhat determine what we do now? Um, both on the individual level as we call people to repent and trust in Jesus Christ and also as a church and what we do in reaching out to communities and transforming them around us. I selected Isaiah 19 also uh, because the theme comes from Isaiah 12. If you've looked uh, that up, you'll see something very similar to our theme in Isaiah chapter 12, and it says about making the known deeds of God known among the peoples, that's peoples who aren't Jewish people in the, in the time back then. And then over the next several chapters, Isaiah has these prophecies of God's judgment on the peoples. It's like, huh? Are those the deeds we're supposed to make known among the peoples? Well, yes, in part. That's what will happen to those who don't trust in Christ. But this chapter, chapter 19, has part of that, which we'll see, focusing on the country of, or the, the nation of Egypt. But then at the end, there's this, there's, in, there's this incredible, hopeful shift that I want us to see that should encourage us in our missions efforts. So, if you look on this map, you'll see that uh, I want to orient you to where we're going to be. You see Assyria in the kind of the right side, uh, about a third of the way down. They were one of the, they were the rising superpower. 
of the age. And you have Egypt down in the left. They were the fading superpower of the age. And you see Judah, that little country there, kind of in between them, Israel right above it. Uh, by this time, um, Assyria was, was threatening and, uh, Judah. And that's where Isaiah was ministering. And so what Judah was doing was like any little country would do, looking for help. Now, if you are people of God, we know we should look to God for help. But the people of God then, just like us, don't always look to God for help. We look to other things. And they were looking to Egypt for help. So they're like little countries like maybe Taiwan trying to balance the U.S. and China, or the Philippines balancing U.S. and China, or back in the Cold War, if those of us who have silver hair remembering, you know, the Soviet Union and the U.S. and countries trying to balance those interests, maybe to protect themselves. Well, at the, at the, that's the political level. At the spiritual level, we as the people of God uh, look to sometimes our work, whether we have a job or not, to provide for our material needs. Or we might look to family members or friends for the encouragement or support that really should ultimately come from Christ. We might look for other pleasures, for the joy that only God can truly give. We might even look to our own reason when the Bible clearly says not to lean on our own understanding. We might even look to our good works or the success of our children for our reputations and feelings of accomplishment. But they were looking to Egypt. Egypt, that country that had enslaved them, that had killed their kings in the past, um, that had given a daughter of Pharaoh to, to Solomon and had tempted him away to worship other gods. Not good company to keep, but when you've got Assyria, who's even worse, who are you going to turn to? You're going to turn to Egypt. That's what they were thinking. That's what we think. When we're leaning on someone or something other than God, God will sometimes, out of his love for us, shake the foundations of what we're trusting in and depending on in order to show us how truly undependable those things are and to turn us to him. My grandmother, my mom's mom, told me that she believed God had taken her husband when she was only in her 50s and left her a widow for over 40 years taken her husband right at the time that her son married and her daughter, my mom, had, was away at college, leaving her alone. Leaving her alone, she believed, so that God could become the focus of her life, not her husband or her family. Yes, God sometimes shakes what we depend on or our false hopes until they fall, until they fail. Well, instead of reading the whole chapter at once, I want to work through it. Um, reading small sections at a time. Isaiah 19, an oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. And the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. 
and I will stir up the Egyptians against the Egyptians, and they will fight each against the other, each against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom, and the spirit of the Egyptians within them will be emptied out, and I will confound their counsel, and they will inquire of the idols and the sorcerers and the mediums and the necromancers, and I will give over the Egyptians into the hand of a hard master, and a fierce king will rule over them, declares the Lord God of hosts. False religions will fail. Now you may say, well, there's just a little bit of religion in here. Most of it's politics. And back then, most, most countries' religion and politics were pretty closely entwined. We kind of separate them out in the United States. But notice that God rides on a cloud more powerful than anything else. And the idols recognize this and tremble in fear like Dagon of the Philistines did when the Ark of the, Tabern Ark of the Covenant was brought in, uh, having been captured by God and it fell down at their feet. False religions will fail. Also politics will fail. There's really a civil war going on in those verses. But not only will those things fail, fabled economies will fail. Starting in verse 5, and the waters of the sea will be dried up, and the river will be dry and parched. This is the Nile River flowing through Egypt. And its canals will become foul, and the branches of Egypt's Nile will diminish and dry up. Reeds and rushes will rot away. There will be bare places by the Nile on the brink of the Nile, and all that is sown by the Nile will be parched will be driven away and will be no more. The fishermen will mourn and lament, all who cast a hook in the Nile and they will languish, who spread nets on the water. The workers in combed flax will be in despair and the weavers of white cotton, those who are the pillars of the land will be crushed and all who work for pay will be grieved. Egypt's economy was dependent on the Nile. And unlike here, where we're dependent on rain, they had a river that would flood. They have canals built to bring the river water out into their fields. They had machines to bring the water out of the canals and water their fields. And so they had, except for the rare time when the river wasn't flooding well, they had almost a guaranteed crop every year. But God can bring that down. Of course, that was the foundation of their economy. They built on that such they have as it says, those who work for pay will be grieved. Salaried people, people who are tradesmen working for money instead of just bringing, raising up crops. Fabled economies will fail. The, you, we, we wonder about that too sometimes, don't we? We see shakings of inflation in the news, uh, hints of that, or concerns about trade imbalances. Um, but not only will fabled economies fail, Fabulous leaders will fail. Verse 11, the princes of Zoan are utterly foolish. The wisest counselors of Pharaoh give stupid counsel. How can you say to Pharaoh, I am a son of the wise, a son of ancient kings? Where then are your wise men? Let them tell you that they might know what the Lord of hosts has proposed against Egypt. The princes of Zoan have become fools and the princes of Memphis are deluded. Those who are the cornerstones of her tribes have made Egypt stagger. The Lord has mingled within her a spirit of confusion, and they will make Egypt stagger in all its deeds as a drunken man staggers in his vomit, and there will be nothing for Egypt. 
that head or tail, palm branch or reed may do. The economy is booming in Egypt, and when that happens, intelligentsia have the time to devote themselves to thought, to philosophy, to reasoning. Later on, Alexandria in Egypt would have a world-famous library that would eventually be burned. God can destroy libraries. He can also destroy our ability to reason and be wise. He can destroy Harvard's and Cambridge's. And this oracle, now this oracle concerning Egypt really has two audiences. Remember, Isaiah's preaching in Jerusalem. So he's telling this to God's people, warning them not to depend on another group with all these problems that God's going to cause to happen. It's also for Egypt, warning them, don't depend on these things. Don't depend on your false religion. Don't depend on your politics. Don't depend on your economy. Don't depend on your wisdom and wise leaders. Depend on the Lord. Trust Jesus. That's part of the message of this first half of the chapter. But then, more importantly, it transitions. Now, I work with, we work with Wycliffe Bible translators. Our founder, Cameron Townsend, after whom we named our older son, Cameron, was completing the translation of the New Testament in a group in Guatemala. This was in the early 1930s, and the strain of the ministry had kind of caught up with him, and he had left the country to go to California. And while he was there, a colleague of his uh, attended a prayer meeting up in New Jersey where they actually fasted and prayed earnestly for these language communities, the, the, the awareness of languages in the world that didn't have the Bible was just kind of coming into the United States and there were people earnestly praying for those languages. A woman gave this colleague of Cameron's a car and they thought they would drive to Mexico and try to get in because they were aware of all the indigenous peoples in Mexico that didn't have the Bible. Problem was, uh, the Mexican leadership didn't want missionaries to come in and mess with the indigenous people groups. They would rather they just learn Spanish and assimilate. Well, Cameron and his colleague drive to the border and they're stopped because their passports identify them as people who are not welcome. They prayed, and remember, they had been prayed for back in New Jersey. Now, there was a letter that Cameron had, Cameron Townsend had. It was a letter from an educator in Mexico inviting them into the country. Now, we could say he was leaning on that letter, but with the prayer and his ultimate attitude of dependence on God, we know that God was just bringing that letter to mind. I mean, we, we do need money to live. When we pray, give us our daily bread, we're not expecting it to drop in our laps. We're asking God to bless our work so that we can go and buy our daily bread. But we're not dependent. We're not focusing our ultimate dependence on our economy or on our wisdom or on our strength. 
just as Cameron was ultimately dependent on prayer in order to get into Mexico, and he did, and they told him, just don't, just don't uh, uh, translate any languages. Well, they continued to pray, and eventually were given favor, and uh, Wycliffe still has some work in Mexico, uh, finishing up Bibles there among various people groups. Well, when we grasp this as citizens of another kingdom, that we are citizens of God's kingdom, we understand that God is in control and uses the things of this world to accomplish his purposes. And we express that dependence in prayer. So, God's word through Isaiah now takes a surprising turn. It looks to the future, the future when Israel, Egypt, and Assyria will no longer be enemies, but rather combined into one people of God. God takes our former foes and makes them into fellow worshipers. I'm going to read the, the whole section here. Just, just listen for the in that days and the crescendo towards the end of what's, what's going on here. In that day, Isaiah 19, verse 16, the Egyptians will be like women and will tremble with fear before the hand that the Lord of hosts shakes over them. And the land of Judah will become a terror to the Egyptians. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will fear because of the purpose that the Lord of hosts has purposed against them. In that day there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. One of these will be called the city of destruction. In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender and deliver them. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering. And they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing, and they will return to the Lord, and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance." God is telling, he's saying in these events in this section that they're going to happen in the future. Just as nothing can stop God from disciplining Egypt, from shaking the foundations of everything they're depending on, so too nothing can stop God's mercy and future grace towards them. And this applies to us. Nothing can get in the way of God saving somebody that he intends to save. What wonderful news. When we think about world politics, when we think about 
foreign relations. As Christians, our first response should be prayer and missions, not increased weapons and creative diplomacy. Prayer and missions are the tools God gives us to bring world peace, just as our sample in this passage here. So, let's see what happens. First off, Egypt begins to fear God and his people. Egypt's fearful. Now, courage in battle is portrayed as a manly virtue that the Egyptians are lacking, and they're afraid of puny Israel. Isn't that a turn of events? And in verse 17, um, we see that now the, the people, the Egyptians fear the people of God and the God whom they serve, and instead of attacking tiny Judah, they're respecting God's people. Sometimes the fear of God and respect for God's people can be a first step to joining God's people. These next verses use the language of the Old Testament to communicate universal truths about those Gentile nations who come to faith in Christ. That's, I want us to understand that as we looked at the next verses, because it speaks of, in that day, there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. Because the language of Canaan would have been that of the Canaanites instead of the language of Judah or Israel. So something's a little bit different here. But what is language? Language is an expression of culture. We speak in the church, sometimes we don't like to use churchese, Christianity-ese language, but it, it simplifies things. It helps us to explain things that are Christian truths. And by speaking the language of Canaan, these cities are speaking truths about God. They're, they're adopting God's culture, God's word in their lives, and incorporating it into their lives. <clears throat> Let me illustrate that from a story of Bible translation. I shared this illustration a couple years ago here in some small groups that we visited, but uh, translator Lee Bramlett was working among the Hadi people in the African nation of Cameroon. And one night, God prompted Lee to look again at the Hidi word for love. Lee and his wife Tammy had learned the verbs of the Hidi language consistently ended in one of three vowels. Every verb they could find ended in I, A, or U. But when it came to the word love, they only found I and A. Why no U? Lee asked the translation committee, including the most influential leaders of the community, could, could you devee your wife with the I ending? Oh yes, they said, that would mean that the wife had been loved, but the love was gone. That doesn't fit for God loving the world, does it? Could you devah your wife, Lee asked. Yes, they said, that kind of love depended on the wife's actions. She would be loved as long as she remained faithful and cared for her husband well. So if those are the only two words for love, how do you translate Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her? 
So Lee sits quietly for a while, thinking even about John 3.16, and he asks, could you devoo your wife? The men laugh. Now, first of all, he had used a word that they had never used, but they understood it. They laughed. They said, oh, no, we would never devoo our wives. It would mean that you would have to keep loving your wife no matter what she did, and even, even if she got you no water, never made your meals, committed adultery, you would be compelled to continue loving her. We would never devoo our wives. So he followed up, could God devoo you? And there was silence for three or four minutes. And tears started to trickle down the old men's faces. And they respond, do you know what this would mean? This would mean that God had kept loving us over and over, millennia after millennia, all the time we rejected his great love. He's compelled to love us even though we have sinned more than any people. One simple vowel had been missing from their language to bring out the word that explained, that provided the language of Canaan, you see, so that they could understand God. And when Egypt is speaking the language of Canaan, they are speaking about God in ways that are true and recognize him and honoring to him. The New Testament was printed in Hidi and six years ago, and 29,000 speakers are now able to feel the impact of passages like, husbands, devote your wives, just as Christ devoted the church. Well, not only do they speak the language of Canaan, but they repent and God saves them in verses 19 through 22. You'll see all this language of sacrifice there. There's an altar to the Lord in the midst of Egypt, a pillar at its border. They're offering sacrifices and fulfilling vows. It sounds just like they have a temple there and they're worshiping. Those structures, to the best of our knowledge, have never actually existed in Egypt. And now that Christ has come and paid the ultimate sacrifice, there's no need for them to exist in Egypt. Christ fulfilled the need for altars and vows. So what did the Egyptians do? What is Isaiah saying here? These people are leaning on Christ's atoning sacrifice just as all people of faith leaned on Christ's atoning sacrifice. Just like they're not necessarily speaking Jewish language, they're not necessarily specifically doing these things, but they are pictures of the inner change that has come to these Egyptian people. They are repenting. They are turning to Christ. Verse 22, the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing, and they will return to the Lord, and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. Isaiah later writes in chapter 53, about the suffering servant. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. 
It's the substitutionary, atoning work of Christ by which we are healed. We all need the spiritual healing of our sin-sick souls through the mercy of God as accomplished by Jesus Christ on the cross. Isn't this wonderful? The enemies of God are now presenting themselves to God by faith and trusting him and by God's power and mercy becoming believers who know Jesus Christ and depend on him and worship him. But it gets even better. They unite with their former foes. Verse 23, in that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And Assyria will come into Egypt and Egypt into Assyria and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. We might liken that to believers from the U.S. worshiping with believers from China. How can there be a highway from Egypt to Assyria? If you've ever been in construction, the only way you can have a highway from one country to the next or one county or one state to the next is for the two sides to agree this is where the highway is going to meet. There's unity. And once you have that highway, you're opening yourself up to people from that other country coming in and visiting and trading and being with you. A highway is a picture of a relationship, of trust, of unity. And this highway, if you look at your map from Egypt to Assyria, it's got to run through Israel in order to be there. And so, not only do they unite with former foes, They ultimately, it gets even better, they carry God's blessing to the world. The last two verses. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria the work of my hands, and Israel my inheritance. If you do a little bit of Old Testament reading, you know that God doesn't usually talk about Egypt as my people or Assyria as the work of my hands. He's using language that he uses, he reserves for Israel, for these other nations. They are, from here, blessing, uh, being a blessing in the midst of the earth. That brings us back to God's promise to Abram, that through his seed, he would bless all the families of the earth. And now he's bringing these peoples to be in Christ, who is that seed, to be conduits of that blessing to the rest of the earth. It's like they're in missionary partners bringing the good news of Jesus Christ around the world. It's a beautiful picture. This is what should motivate us, this hope, this vision of unity among believers working across racial, cultural, ethnic borders to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to peoples all around the earth making his deeds known, not only for what he's done for us personally, what he's done for our marriages, for our communities, and what he's done to bridge racial lines, ethnic lines, cultural lines in our nation and around the world. We get little pictures of that from the reports that are given here uh, over the last couple days. And, and, and Roy brought yesterday morning, he had this, he closed his message with this Uh, reference to Revelation chapter 7, this picture of people from all languages and nations and tribes gathered around worshiping the Lamb. 
This is another picture of that. But they're on mission together. It's awesome. It's a great thing to be a part of. With all the division and hatred and animosity in the world today, what a great opportunity through missions to be a part of God's unifying work, ultimately unifying around the cross, around the throne of Jesus Christ in heaven to worship him. It happens, it happens, even, even in small ways this day. We get little hints of that these days in which we presently live. Andrea had a missionary auntie in the Philippines named Joanne Shetler. She was a Wycliffe Bible translator working among the Belongau people. She lived among them for several decades, learning their language and translating the Bible into it. Another Wycliffe missionary was working with a neighboring people group, the Ifagao. The Ifagao and the Belongau had been headhunting enemies of one another for centuries. The highway or the little footpath between their villages would have markers on the path warning that if you come further, you just might lose your head. Well, after these groups heard the translated word and understood the gospel of Jesus Christ and placed their faith in him, their identities as brothers and sisters in Christ became their primary identity. And now they share meals together and enjoy Christian fellowship and have Bible conferences together. Still amazing for the Belongau and Ifagao believers who remember their former way of life. Oh, God is wonderful, so worthy of our praise. A few, a few additional applications. Don't depend on anyone or anything else other than God and his promises. I'm not saying there isn't kind of a tentative uh, trust in others. We, we have to. But ultimately, it is God whom we are trusting. You may be, you may be like Egypt right now. You may have been trusting your wisdom or your own ideas, your own ability to earn money. Maybe as God is causing these hopes to wobble in your life and fail. Turn to him. Join God's people and rejoice in him. And this is a missions conference and the only hope for peace and lasting unity among enemies is Jesus Christ. And he makes that possible. We can look at our own hearts and ask, are we unified with God's people? I've heard before that one test of our true unity across uh, racial, economic, and cultural lines is would you be willing to have a Christian man or woman who comes from a different racial, cultural, or economic background marry your son or daughter? God is the unshakable shaker who alone deserves our trust. Another, the goal of missions is the worship of God by people from every nation. And that's what we should put our efforts behind. Don't let the world's efforts of unity and politics and wisdom and economics despair influence us. Missions is the means to the glorious end portrayed in this chapter. 
We must tell of his deeds among the nations. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, what a great vision of enemies becoming worshipers before you. Inspire us and motivate us to be a part of this. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.